is Colossians chapter 1, and we are going to be reading verses 11 through, or 9 through 14. Colossians chapter 1, not a traditional uh, Christmas sermon text, but one that certainly <clears throat> bears upon the Christmas story and the whole reason, the whole purpose for which Christ came into the world. <clears throat> So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. Paul is writing, and he says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let us mark the words of these last two verses very carefully as we read them again. Paul says, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And these are the themes, or these are the words I would like to focus on this morning um, as we speak about the subject of the birth of our Savior, which, of course, was only a prelude to everything else that he did, the necessary first step to everything that Jesus accomplished for us. We find in these two verses a twofold action of God the Father with respect to believers. First, he has delivered us from something, and he has transferred us to something. He's delivered us from something bad, and he has transferred us to something good. Well, what has he delivered us from? He's delivered us from something that the Apostle Paul refers to as the domain of darkness. It has a very eerie and very scary a connotation to it, the domain of darkness. The word translated domain is a word that means authority, power, uh, the right uh, to control or govern, dominion, the area or sphere of jurisdiction. And this word is qualified in the text by the word darkness. God has delivered us from the authority, the power, the control, the jurisdiction of darkness. Now, the domain of darkness is the domain over which Satan rules. Now, someone might say, well, isn't the Lord the Lord of all? Doesn't he have absolute universal dominion? And yes, ultimately he does. But given the nature of what happened at the fall, we understand from the scriptures that a limited and temporary authority over the world has been handed over to Satan. Adam essentially changed his allegiance and squandered his inheritance by refusing the word of God and listening instead to the serpent, that is, the devil. Remember that God had given Adam, the head of the human race, dominion over the earth. God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. This is a grant of dominion, of authority, over, of power over the work of God's hands as it relates to the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What a magnificent calling God gave to man, to Adam and Eve. What a high and holy calling to be essentially God's vice regents, to govern the earth under God's authority, uh, to be given charge of it. Um, under, again, subject to his dominion and his authority. He essentially gave Adam and Eve everything that he had made as it relates to the earth into the hands of Adam and Eve. But they foolishly threw this away by squandering it and turning it over to the devil, by listening to the word of the devil rather than listening to the word of God. They trusted the devil's word. God gives them a word um, uh, uh, that they were to fulfill, The devil gives a countermanding word, and now Adam and Eve find themselves in a pickle. Whose word do we believe? Do we believe God's word, or do we believe the devil's word? And they choose to believe the devil's word. And they do this because they perceive wrongly that it's in their own self-interest to do so, that God was withholding something good for them that the devil was suggesting, or at least this is what the devil was suggesting, and they believed, they trusted the devil's word over and above God's word. And in trusting the devil's word, they ended up obeying him. There's an inseparable connection between faith and obedience, trust and obedience. It's that way with God. If we trust God, we will obey him. It's, it's inevitable. Psychologically, it's impossible to do otherwise. If we believe what God has, says, has said, then we will necessarily obey him. And the same thing is true here now with the devil. They believe that the devil word, devil's word is true and God's word is false. And so they follow through, practically speaking, by obeying the devil's word. And they eat the fruit of the forbidden tree. And in that act, they committed what amounts to high treason. They changed their allegiance from God to the devil. And both they and everything that belonged to them, including their God-given dominion over the world, came under the devil's power. Uh, This is brought out, among other places, in the interaction between our Lord and the devil when he was spending the 40 days in the wilderness fasting and praying immediately after his baptism. The devil, it says, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and he said to him, the devil speaking to Jesus, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered over to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. So we gather, I think, when we put this passage, along with a number of others in Scripture together, that there was a transaction that took place in the fall, in which the control of the world was handed over to the devil. Although we know he can't do just anything he pleases. We know that God exercises or retains ultimate authority over everything that he has made. There was a certain, there was a certain transaction that took place at the fall that yielded, by God's providence, a certain measure of control over to the devil. But we, he cannot do just anything he pleases, as we said. You'll recall that he first had to obtain permission from God to afflict Job and to torment him. And God gave him permission at first only to afflict Job in terms of his possessions and in terms of his family. And so we find that the devil stirs up the Sabians to steal Job's donkeys and to kill the servants who were watching them. He causes lightning to strike. that causes a fire that consumed his sheep in the field and their shepherds. And he moved the Chaldeans to make a raid upon the camels who took them and killed their their drivers. And he caused a great wind to destroy the house where all of his sons and daughters were gathered together and killed them. And later, he sought 
and obtain permission to afflict Job in his body, in his person, not just in his possessions and his family, but now in his own person. Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give in exchange for his life, uh, the devil says to God. Sure, I've done all of these things to him, and he's maintained his integrity. He's not cursed you. He's not turned his back on you. But now let me afflict him in his own body, and that will be the tipping point, and he will curse you to your face. And God said, you may afflict him, only spare his life. You may go so far, but no further. We see in all of this that the devil has to have a certain grant of permission before he can act, but that the Lord Um, grants a certain measure of authority. It's temporary and it's a certain measure, but there is a very real sense in which the devil has control in this world. And so our point here is just this, that the devil has a domain of darkness in which he rules over, over the earth. The greatest and most dangerous aspect of this, however, is the control that he has over the souls of men. The control that he has over the souls of men, tempting them, deceiving them, keeping them in sin and darkness. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 12, he is called the deceiver of the whole world. And this is the primary means by which he controls people and exercises dominion over them by deceiving them, as he deceived Adam and Eve in the first place, saying that God's word is not a true word. He's withholding something good from you. I'm telling you the truth. You eat of this tree and you'll become wise like God. And you can make decisions for yourself determining what is good and evil. He was deceiving them and he exercises his power in large part by deception. Paul speaks of the devil as the God of this world who has blinded the minds of unbelievers. What a a powerful way to describe him. The God of of this world. There's a certain sense in which the devil is, with a small g, the god of this world. There is an allegiance that is given to him by those who remain in unbelief. They're not actively serving God, and they're not seeking to do his will, and in essence what they're doing is fulfilling the devil's will. Though they may not be conscious of it, they may not this may not be their intention, this is the effect and the reality of the situation. People in their fallen state as Paul says in Ephesians, are dead in trespasses and sins. They're following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. The spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Man has, in the words of Paul to Timothy, fallen into the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. John adds his voice to this as well when he says in 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are from God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So there's a very dark and ominous tone to these passages describing the reality of the state of the world since the fall, the sway, the dominion uh, that the devil holds over God's creation as a result, as a consequence of the fall. This is also why on the flip side of it, the work of God on our behalf is cast in opposite terms. Terms like redemption, salvation, deliverance, rescue, turning from darkness to light. We are in the series on the book of Acts. We're taking a break today, but you remember we just read through and just discussed the account of Paul's conversion, his Damascus Road experience. Later in chapter 26 of Acts, he's recounting his experience to King Agrippa. And this is how he describes it. The Lord appeared to him and said, Rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, 
to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things which you have seen, uh, in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm now sending you to open their eyes, to enlighten them, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. What a powerful description of conversion, to, be, to have your eyes open so that you're no longer in darkness, but now you see. Once I was blind, but now I see. And to be delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, shifting from darkness to light and shifting from the power of Satan to God. So God has delivered us from the power of Satan, from the dominion of darkness. That's the first act of God that Paul mentions in Colossians chapter 1 and verses 11 and 12, or rather 13 and 14. That's the first act. The second act of God is that he has transferred us from the king, to the kingdom of his beloved son. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and he has transferred us. He's moved us from one place to another, from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. We have been freed from Satan's power. The cords with which he had us bound have been broken. Our connection to him has been severed. The legal claims against us that made us subject to him as a tormentor of sinners have all been redressed by the sacrifice of Christ. They've been set right. And therefore, we have been qualified, as Paul says in verse 12 of our opening text, we've been qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, which means that we have been given a place in the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Now now think of this. And, and, and the more I ponder this, and you've heard me talk about this from time to time in, in recent years, the, the affection that the Father has for the Son. We see it written here. We have been transferred to the kingdom of his beloved Son. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6, it talks about how uh, we, ha- we are in the beloved. Those who are in Christ are in the beloved. On two occasions when Jesus was walking this earth, the voice of God the Father was heard from heaven, not only in the hearing of Jesus, but also in the hearing of those who were gathered around. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God never said this about anybody or to anybody other than Jesus. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He is the only person who has ever lived or ever will live in whom God finds absolutely no fault. Everything that Jesus does pleases the Father because Jesus always acts in accordance with the will of his Father. You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. At his baptism, in the hearing of the people who are gathered around, and we get an idea that the crowd was very large, And then in a much smaller setting on the Mount of Transfiguration when Peter, James, and John were present and the glory cloud of God appears and out of that cloud the voice is heard, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then the addition, listen to him. Listen to what he has to say. And so God has given us a share in the kingdom of of his son whom he loves. And this speaks to the love that the Father has for us as well, that God would do this for us, that he would include us in, in the beloved, that he would look with favor, the kind of favor that he has with Jesus, he looks upon us with that same favor. Why? Because we deserve it? No. 
That's the whole point of grace. We don't deserve it. But when we are united to him by faith, we are in the beloved. And he can refer to us now, and he calls us his beloved also. We are his loved ones. The the term that Paul likes to use is his saints. And when I address you in an email, mass email to the church, I always say, dear saints. I want you to think of yourself in those terms. You are God's holy ones, his beloved ones. And so we have been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. And again, this speaks of the love that he has for us. So again, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness where we justly languished in our sin and guilt and had nothing to look forward to but a pitiless future of eternal torment. And we have been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom there is blessing and joy forevermore. And all of this, Paul says, is on account of what Jesus has done. It's all on on account of Christ himself. Paul says, in him, in Christ, we have redemption, which, he explains, consists in the forgiveness of sins, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, let's think about this word redemption for just a moment here. Uh, This word in Greek refers to a deliverance or a release procured by the payment of a ransom. Deliverance or release procured or obtained by the payment of a ransom. A ransom, of course, typically consists in the payment of money. In its literal sense, the word was used in the ancient world to refer to the payment of money to gain the freedom of prisoners of war. Secondly, slaves, and most people who were enslaved in the ancient world were enslaved because they were prisoners of war, so the two are almost identical. And then thirdly, criminals who were doomed to death. So think of someone who has been captured or enslaved or sentenced to death. And along comes someone else who has the means and the goodwill to ransom him, to rescue him, to deliver him out of his dire situation. In the Old Testament, this responsibility of redemption uh, fell to the nearest male relative, and he was called the Redeemer, or the Old King James Version says the Kinsman Redeemer. It was a close family member, closest male relative, who had the responsibility to seek to rescue or deliver a fellow family member out of one of these dire situations. And we have a fine example of this with respect to the redemption of a slave in the book of Leviticus. I'd like for you to turn there with me in Leviticus chapter 25. And this may seem like arcane minutiae of Old Testament law, but this sets the necessary background for us to understand how the term redemption is used in the New Testament, at least with respect um, to, the, to enslavement. In Leviticus chapter 25, and at verse 47, we'll read verses 47 through 49. Moses and the people of Israel are out in the wilderness. God is using Moses to deliver his law to Israel. He's describing a situation in which after the people have entered into the land, they've settled in it, and something like this might occur. He says, if a stranger or a sojourner, that is a non-native Israelite, if a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich, and your brother, fellow Jew, becomes, beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be, what? Redeemed. Now, is this talking about 
his sins may be forgiven and he can go to heaven when he dies. No, it's talking about a legal transaction, a financial transaction that takes place with respect to slavery. He says, after he is sold, he may be redeemed, rescued through the payment of a, a ransom of sorts. It says, and one of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him, or a close relative from his clan may redeem him. Or if he grows rich, rare in the ancient world for a slave to grow rich, but not entirely unheard of, if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. If he prospers enough, he may purchase his own freedom. And so here is the case of a man who finds himself in such dire need that he's unable to provide for himself. He's reduced to such a state that the only recourse he sees is to sell himself as a slave, in which case his owner becomes responsible to provide for him. And he, in turn, becomes responsible to work for his master, to be at his master's beck and call. Not a very enviable position, to be sure, but at least it's better than starving to death. We can, we can think of this as kind of an Old Testament um, work-based welfare program. Right? There's, still, there's work required of him, but in return for this, he is provided for. Um, and, and then there's a certain, as it goes on to say, there's a certain limit, a number of years before, if he's not able to be redeemed, um, he's automatically released. But that's a subject for another time. Now, under God's law, unlike the laws of many other nations in the ancient world, a slave could not be mistreated. A man who sold himself into slavery to maintain himself or his family could not be mistreated. In other nations, slaves were regarded as property that could be treated and disposed of in any manner that the master might wish, even done unto death at the whim of his master. But this was not the case under the law of Moses. But the important thing for us to see here is that provisions were made for slaves to be redeemed, which again is to say that money could be given in exchange for their freedom. That is, they could be ransomed. This could also be done for captives of war. Say a town or a village has been overrun by an enemy and its inhabitants have been captured to be sold as slaves. But the king, whose subjects have been captured, has the means and he has the goodwill to ransom his subjects who have fallen into the hands of the enemy. Old Testament law also made provisions for the redemption of someone who was guilty of a crime for which he might be sentenced to death. Let's look at another passage in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 21. And again, I don't want you to get lost in the minutia of Old Testament law here, but this provides us with a very helpful understanding of the idea of redemption. In this case, it's not somebody who has been captured um, uh, and through no fault of their own ends up being enslaved or voluntarily sells himself as a slave, but this involves the idea of guilt. He deserves punishment uh, because of something um, that he has done, but he is redeemed. Uh, from the punishment that is due to him. So Exodus chapter 1, beginning at verse 28. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned. All right, now that sounds like really an odd thing. Why take vengeance on the ox? Well, this is said according to the principle laid out in Genesis chapter 9, that anyone who takes the life of man by man should his life be taken. And this applies not only to a human being who takes the life of another human being, but even to an animal. God is setting the life of man in the context for people to understand that that, uh, there's a premium on his life because man's life is qualitatively different from the life of every other thing that has life because only man has been created in the image and likeness of God. 
In Genesis 9, 6, whoever, man or animal, sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So it says here, when an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten. It's treated like it's an unclean animal. But the owner of the ox shall not be liable. This means that the owner of the ox is not punishable under the circumstance. Uh, This is because it was the ox's act and not the owner's. It was not the man who killed his neighbor, but the man's ox who did so. Consequently, the ox alone bears the punishment. But look what comes next. But, but if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned, but he has not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. All right, here's a case in which under God's law, such criminal negligence that led to the death of another human being um, is something that qualifies a person for a capital sentence. It is a case of criminal negligence. He knew his ox was a danger, but he didn't take sufficient steps to prevent it from harming someone. And in this case, his negligence led to the death of another human being. And so he too is worthy of death. But because it was not willful murder, that is, he didn't intentionally cause the death of his neighbor, he was allowed to be redeemed from the punishment of death. Now, is this beginning to sound a little bit familiar when we think about the concept of redemption in the New Testament? To be redeemed from some kind of sinful behavior that would lead us unto death, punishable by death. Verse 30 says, If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed upon him. The meaning here is that he could be saved from the death that he deserves, that is, his life could be redeemed by the payment of a ransom. And in this particular case, it's monetary compensation to the victim or to the victim's family. And this, I would suggest, is perhaps the closest analogy we have to the New Testament concept of redemption. We are like criminals who deserve to die. And the death that we deserve to die is not just a physical death, but it's eternal death. It is a spiritual, eternal death and separation from God. We have done things for which we ought to be punished by the exclusion by exclusion from the life of God forever. So we are like criminals deserving of death. But we are also like captives of war. We have been defeated by an enemy who is too powerful for us, and we can't extricate ourselves from his grasp. This also means that we are like slaves. Not only has the devil captured us, but just like in ancient times, the captives of war were turned into slaves, so we also, as captives of the devil, have been enslaved by him. And all of this is due to our sins. This is why Paul speaks of our redemption as consisting in the forgiveness of sins. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of our sins. And the forgiveness of sins is the key element here. It was our sins that made us subject to Satan's power in the first place. Our sins stand as a legal claim against us. Our sins constitute a moral debt that we can never, ever repay. We are slaves that can never prosper to such an extent that we can redeem ourselves. And, and find deliverance by our own efforts. In his craftiness, the devil overcame us by deceiving us. He conquered us by his deceit, and he holds us in bondage until we pay a debt to God's justice that we can never repay. 
But our gracious God was willing to accept a ransom that redeems us from our eternal punishment. And not only was he willing to accept such a ransom, he was willing to pay this ransom by offering the suffering and death of his beloved son in exchange for our lives. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 20. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a, what? Do you know the verse? A ransom for many. We're not talking about the payment of money here. This could, a payment of money would never do. But it is a ransom that consists of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, this well-beloved Son of God in whom he takes great pleasure, who never sinned. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Peter also mentions this, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Again, saying it's not by money, not by silver and gold, but by something that's far more precious than that, the blood of the beloved Son of God. So this is what it means to be redeemed. A ransom has been paid for our release from Satan's power and from the just punishment that we deserved on account of our sins. John tells us of a scene in the book of Revelation, in chapter 5, of a great multitude surrounding the throne of the Lamb uh, who had been slain. And they sing this song, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you have ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. This is why he came into the world. It is a beautiful story to think of a little baby that was born in such squalor and poverty and such humble circumstances, no room in the inn, and here's this little precious one born in a stable. But this wasn't just any little precious one. This was the beloved Son of God who came into the world uh, precisely for the purpose of laying down his life to be a ransom for many. He became incarnate for this very purpose. A couple of weeks ago when we had communion, we talked about in Hebrews chapter 10, how Jesus, speaking prophetically in Psalm chapter 40, uh, in sacrifice and offering that you have not delighted, but a body you have prepared for me, a body that, that God the Father had prepared for his Son to offer as the full and really only real sacrifice that would bring atonement and redemption for people. And I believe it's important for us to understand the full extent of the redemption that Christ brings. We often think of redemption only in personal terms. And this is a very important aspect of redemption, to be sure, that uh, persons, people, human beings, you and I, are personally redeemed when we trust in Christ. But we must also remember that all of creation was affected by the fall. All of creation came under a curse, Immediately after the fall, the Lord confronts each participant. He approaches the serpent. Uh, Well, first of all, he approaches, uh, is it Adam? Adam first. But anyway, he announces a curse that falls upon the earth. The ground is cursed 
because of you. It's not going to bring forth in its abundance like it would have apart from the effects of the fall. The ground is cursed. The crops are cursed. Everything that comes from the ground is under a curse. Thorns and thistles are going to grow. Instruments that bring pain to man and to the animals who are, are pricked by these things as a reminder of, of the fall and its consequences. He speaks to Eve and says, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. There are notes of pain frequently in, in these things in God announcing the curse. Pain, pain for Adam as he's, as he's from the toil of his, the sweat of his brow, he's working the land to bring forth food to sustain himself. He encounters thorns and thistles. Eve, in one of her primary callings as a mother, is multiplied pain. And you women can testify to this who have had children, what, what this, what's involved in this. And to the serpent, he speaks of, of how he is cursed above all cattle and all livestock and the beasts of the field, implying that there's a curse that not only comes on the individual serpent uh, that the devil used to apply his temptation to Adam and Eve, but of all animals, whether domesticated animals, livestock, or wild animals, the beasts of the field, all of these come under a curse. So the picture that we get is that all creation is subject to the curse of the sin. There is pain, there is sickness, there is suffering, and there is death that enters into the world because of sin. Paul says, by one man's sin entered the world and death by sin, Romans 5.12. And so everything has been touched by the fall. All of the world has come under a curse. And I think it's not by accident nor without meaning that Jesus bore an emblem of the curse upon his head when he was crucified. Again, remember the word in Genesis 3. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And what do we read in the New Testament? Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and placed it upon his head. He wore upon his head an emblem of the curse as he suffered. Now, this was meant as a cruel and ironic joke on the part of the soldiers. He claims to be a king, the king of the Jews. A king needs a crown. Let's fix the crown for him. And they weave this crown of thorns and they place it upon his head. And then we're told in Matthew's account of it that the soldiers took a reed and they beat him over the head with it after he'd been crowned with those thorns. And you can imagine those thorns going deep into the scalp penetrating probably as far as, as even the skull. And he is in great pain because of this. And his, the hair of his head and the hair of his beard must have been matted with blood. He is wearing the, the emblem of the curse as a crown as he suffers to deliver those who are under a curse. Paul writes in Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And the crown of thorns that he wore was an emblem of this. And so he redeems us from the curse of the law. And not only does he redeem us, but he also redeems all of creation. All that came under the effects of the fall, all that experienced the curse, also is redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. The, 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 the extent of the redemption is as extensive as the curse is. Look with me again to one more passage in Romans chapter 8. In Paul, 
brings this out in, in probably the fullest detail that we have, even though it only tantalizes us with a little bit of, uh, of what he means here. But in Romans chapter 8, he speaks of how all creation itself will be delivered from the effects of the fall. Romans 8, beginning at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and here he's talking specifically about the persecutions that God's people often suffer. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. All of creation was subjected to futility, emptiness, uh, frustration, not bearing, uh, not, not fulfilling everything that God intended for the creation to fulfill when it came fresh from his hand. There is frustration, there, there is vanity, there is futility, there is emptiness, there is a, a lack of fulfilling the purpose for which everything was made. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope. In other words, there's, this is not the end of the story, that creation comes under a curse and ends in vanity and nothingness. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Here he's talking about, you know, we often speak about the salvation of our souls or the redemption of the soul. That's not the whole extent even of our personal redemption. The whole of our personal redemption includes the redemption of our bodies, uh, the resurrection when Christ comes again, in which this veil of human flesh that is so beset by weakness and suffering and sickness and pain, subject to all of these things as a result of the curse, when all of that is removed. And and we enjoy life in its fullest vigor, not only life in the soul, but life in the body as well. And the older I get, the more I come to appreciate this promise, this hope of the redemption of the body. This is coming. When the, when the person dies, their hope is not that they spend a disembodied existence in all eternity in heaven, but that one day Christ comes again and the body that is safely deposited in the grave will be raised up again, made new and young and forever strong, never subject to sin, sickness, and death any longer. And this is, this is some of what Paul is touching upon here. It affects us individually as human beings, but he's saying this release, this redemption, this perfection uh, that, that God is going to bring about when Christ comes again it is coextensive with all of creation, coextensive with everything that came under the curse, which, again, is all of creation. He says for, in verse 24, in this hope we were saved. In other words, we, that, that's a part of what we're hoping for. We have a present salvation and certain things that we experience in this life as a part of that salvation. Forgiveness of sins, 
peace and joy in our conscience, knowing that we've been reconciled to God, we've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, we have fellowship with God, we can commune with him through prayer. There are present aspects of our redemption that we cherish now, but there is a future aspect of our redemption that we still hope for, not hope for in the sense of it may or may not come, but hope in the sense that it's still future, which is not a present possession. For who hopes for what he sees? In other words, if we already had the fullness of it, we wouldn't be hoping for it still. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So Paul is talking here about a very comprehensive redemption. Personal redemption, yes, thanks be to God for that. But a a creation-wide redemption as well. We don't have the time to turn to this, but just for your later consideration, you might look up Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, where Paul says that through him, through God, or I'm sorry, God, through Christ, God reconciled to himself all things, reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, this is not to say that everybody's going to be saved, but it is to say that the effects of his redemption um, are as extensive as the entire cosmos, heaven and earth. So the redemptive work of Christ, and this is the key thing that I want to leave you with, the redemptive work of Christ is as extensive as the effects of the fall. Isaac Watts, who wrote so many great hymns, wrote in the hymn that we're about to sing, Joy to the World, he wrote these lines. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Amen. Let's pray.